Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, it's Amit Goyal. Join us for this case report, a fascinating discussion where we get to learn from colleagues at SUNY Downstate, cardiology fellows Dr. Eric Kufferstein and Dr. Gautam Papadia, along with expert faculty, a beloved mentor, and interventional cardiologist Dr. Alan Fight. We are so proud to have a special appearance as guest host Dr. Priya Kotapalli, our fellow ambassador from UT Austin, soon to be the very first interventional fellow at that institution, and cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Moritz Weiler von Balmus. I'm happy to say that since the time of this recording, Dr. Priya Kotapalli and Dr. Van Balmus have been married. So from all of us cardio nerds, Priya and Moritz, we wish you the very best together in all of your future endeavors. Friends, remember that Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded educational platform, and the views expressed here don't necessarily match the opinions or policies of our employers. If you enjoy the show, help us spread the word, rate and review us on your favorite podcast app, and share your thoughts about this case on social media. But before we dive into today's discussion, we are so proud to introduce Dr. Jenna Lovell as a Cardio Nerds Fit trialist. The Cardinals Clinical Trials Network was created with the mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with fit personal and professional development. We are proud to now have 18 sites worth of fit trialists and PI mentors to support Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mintz. Dr. Jana Lovell was nominated by Dr. Kavita Sharma to represent Johns Hopkins. And Dan's not on the recording right now, but I just can't tell you how excited he was, Jana, that you were going to be joining us in this capacity. So, Jana, welcome to Cardi Nerd's family. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most excited about as a fit trialist? Well, thank you so much for having me to be a part of this program. So my name's Jana. I've been at Hopkins since medical school. I stayed on for ulcer residency, and then I continued my journey at Hopkins in the cardiology fellowship. Um, so I'm finishing up my second year of clinical training, and then for the next two years, I'll be joining the T32 and working with Luigi Adamo in immunology. And then following that, I'm planning on pursuing advanced training in heart failure transplant. You know, Charm City certainly has a way to pull you in and not let go, doesn't it, Jenna? Yeah, absolutely. I think Baltimore has definitely changed a lot since I was a medical student here. Um, so it's been really exciting to see Baltimore grow a lot, and I think it gets a bad rap. But as Dan can attest to, and you as well, Baltimore has a lot of charm to it. It has a lot of great food, great people, just a great environment overall. And of course, Hopkins is just a great environment to study and learn in. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you're making me very nostalgic to <laughs> Hopkins in Baltimore. But, you know, Jenna, providing mentorship is such a key goal throughout all of Cardiners, but that's especially true for the clinical trials program. And you are right there with the National Lead PI for Paraglide here in America, Dr. Kavita Sharma. And as a fit trialist, you particularly have been just prolific with trial enrollment and have been a model for your colleagues in the program. So would you please share what working with Dr. Sharma has meant for you? Dr. Sharma definitely has been a great role model as a resident and as a fellow. Um, Not many fellows can say that they started their own clinical trial and were supported by a program to do that. And Dr. Sharma, obviously with Repidope, was able to do that at Hopkins and to see how involved and accomplished she's been as a young female attending is, is really inspiring to me. 
Yeah, inspiring for all of us. I remember the early days of Robodoba, how so many of my co-residents were involved. And, um, you know, she really rallied the troops around that trial in a very successful way. Jenna, thank you so much for your work as a fit trialist. And I know I speak for Dan as well, that we are so honored to have you as part of the Cardinals family. Well, thank you so much. I'm excited to join. I remember when Dan, a few years ago, was starting to come up with this idea and how excited he was. So it's really been awesome to see it grow so exponentially. And with that, let's get on to the case. Hey, Dhruv, do you know what time it is? Time to get nerdy. Let's do it. Hey, Cardi nerds, welcome back to a very exciting case discussion. Today, we get to hear for the very first time fellows and colleagues from SUNY Downstate. But first, I am so happy and excited to have a very special co-host join us today. You've heard her before, Dr. Priya Kothapali, who is a second-year fellow at UT Austin. You'll remember her from an earlier episode when I learned about, for the very first time, Suicide LV Post-Taver. Priya is a future interventional cardiologist. She's interested in all things cardiology, especially all things coronary. And Priya, if I remember right, you have a, a particular affinity to intracoronary imaging, physiology, and hemodynamics. Thanks, Amit, for the introduction. I'm thrilled to be here. This is one of my favorite things to do, even while on vacation. And I'm excited to introduce our team today from SUNY Downstate. We have Dr. Eric Cooperstein and Dr. Gautam Upadhyay joining us today. So if you guys want to give yourselves a little bit of an introduction to our crowd. Hi, I'm, I'm Eric Cooperstein, born and raised here in New York. Done all my medical training here, starting from medical school, residency, and fellowship all here in New York. Free time, I love to go skiing play hockey at least once or twice a week on ice, and I'm really excited to be here. My name is Gautam Upadhyay. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow downstate. I'm originally from New York. I also did my medical school abroad, half in India, half here, and the rest from residency and fellowship in Brooklyn. My free time, I also love to ski in the winter, and when I can get out in the summer, I enjoy scuba diving. I'm really uh, happy to be here, and thank you for having me. Awesome. Welcome to the show. Eric Gotham. this is an absolute honor and pleasure to have you. And we are so excited to be in New York. Take us to Brooklyn and take us to your favorite chill spot so we can have an amazing discussion about cardiology. Wow, Brooklyn, it's a quote-unquote melting pot if nobody else has ever used that expression before. I think we can agree that we love hanging out at Prospect Park. It's our little mini lesser-known central park here in Brooklyn. It's got great skating if anyone wants to play ice hockey out there. It's also got this thing called smorgasbord in the summertime in the fall where a bunch of food carts get together and whatever type of food you can imagine and lots of picnic tables over there. That was all before COVID. Wonder what's going to happen next year. That sounds awesome. So our case we're going to discuss today is a, actually a 63-year-old male. This is a patient with a history of known coronary artery disease, had a cabbage done, presented, and he came to clinic basically with recurrent uh, episodes of chest pain. Uh, especially exertion. The chest pain was noted to be left-sided, squeezing in nature, without radiation, and it was worsened with exertion and related rest. It's associated with lightheadedness and one episode of syncope for about a little less than five seconds. There had been a decrease in his exercise tolerance. The symptoms improved only slightly after he had cabbage, which was four years ago. And since then, these symptoms have been progressively worsened. Of note, his PCP has been lowering his dose of metoprolol due to persistent hypotension. Over the last four years, he had three exercise stress echoes, all of which demonstrated subtle ST depressions, but otherwise normal wall motion, 
on rest and with appropriate augmentation with exertion. However, each time his METs and exercise capacity decreased, the patient has now expressed that his angina is beginning to affect his ADLs. His past medical history is CAD with cabbage, hyperlipidemia, peripheral vascular disease, and psoriasis. You know, surgical history again, the cabbage, he had a four vessel bypass. I mean, the specifics were Lima at LAD, SVG to his OM1 and 2, and another SVG to D1, and uh, the last SVG to the PDA. The current medications, aspirin, labix, metoprolol succinate, and atorvastatin. Otherwise, no allergies. Family history is mother and brother were known to have CAD and diabetes. Social history, never smoking, quit alcohol use graded 10 years ago, and he works as an ice cream server. So now, basically, what we're thinking is, you know, what, what could be our differential at this time? Why did his symptoms persist after cabbage? So there's a couple of thoughts that crossed our mind at this time. Number one, did his grafts close? Well, it's well known that the longevity of the lima can last a lifetime, at least 10 years. So it's unlikely that the lima closed. However, the concern would then be one of his SVGs, his aptness main grafts. He has a total of three SVGs. One was a jump graft supplying both his OM1 and his OM2. The longevity of the SVGs are significantly reduced relative to the lima. Is it possible that one or possibly more of his SVGs close and that's what's causing his angina? Certainly possible. Is this angina sub-epicardial vessel disease? Angiography is the gold standard test to evaluate for coronary disease. Yet, when it comes to myocardial perfusion imaging, 50% of the MPIs results in non-obstructive coronary artery disease once the patient actually undergoes angiography. One explanation for this discrepancy is the fact that MPI evaluates the ischemia on the cellular level while the angiography is limited to the epicardial vessel disease. It certainly is possible that our patient has further coronary artery disease in the sub-epicardial vessels that's causing his current angina. Now, for the last point, is this something that's not related to coronary artery disease at all? We often jump to ischemia as the cause for angina, and rightfully so, but the differential for angina is so much larger and can include a whole array of pathologies. When considering cardiac etiologies, I like to break down the heart into four categories. The plumbing, the electricity, the valves, and the pump. When I say plumbing, I mean coronary diseases, atherosclerosis, bridging, is it spasm, is it scad? When we refer to electricity, that usually means any arrhythmia that's going on. Uh, when thinking of the valves, is there stenosis, regurgitation, is there infection on the valves? And then when it comes to pump, it usually refers to heart failure, infiltrative disease, when considering these four categories, one can generally cover a wide differential. And of course, the diagnosis can also be something not related to the cardiovascular system at all. So at the time of the evaluation, the blood pressure was stable. It's 122 by 65. Heart rate was 91. On physical exam, he was obese male, not in acute distress, otherwise well-groomed, alert-oriented, no JVD, normal thyroid, no carotid brewery. It was a midline scar, normal S1-2. Regular rate and rhythm and no murmurs, rubs, or gaps. You have bilateral air entry, no wheezing, no rubs. Soft, non-tender, undistended abdomen. Bilaterally, one plus edema. It was a little bit more worse on the left uh, leg, which was subsequent to his uh, vein harvesting for the cabbage. And pulses were two plus uh, in the radio bilaterally, uh, one plus ulnar pulse. And bilateral, you had non-palpable low extremity pulses. 
especially on the dorsalis pedis and posterior tibialis. So the basic chemistry was more or less within normal limits, normal sodium, potassium, renal function was normal. The liver function tests were also within normal limits. CBC was also stable. His hemoglobin was 13.6, normal platelets, normal coagulation profile. Vitropointin was not available at that time with the basic test. And BNP was not elevated. It was 73. Cholesterol was also mildly elevated. Uh, total cholesterol was 173. LDL is 107. HDL was 44. Triglycerides, 108. And he was not diabetic. His uh, A1C was 5.7. Okay, so now we're going to go over the EKG. EKG was a normal sinus rhythm without any conduction abnormalities. It had normal access. There were no ischemic changes to note. Uh, at this point, the EKG seems reassuring, but of course, we would like to see what his EKG looks like under stress or when he's having his symptoms. This, this is a fascinating case. I think it's always difficult when we have patients with a history of coronary disease and bypass surgery not too long ago, about four years ago is what you guys mentioned, coming in with classic anginal symptoms who has risk factors for progressive disease, for microvascular dysfunction, for a number of other problems. And just to kind of highlight the classic symptoms that he's having in terms of his angina, he's having left-sided chest pressure pain, worse with exertion, improved with rest. And he also had a significant decline in his functional capacity. All of these things are, you know, very appropriately being worked up for ischemic causes. And if you guys want to kind of highlight your thought process when it came to selecting the ischemic evaluation with stress echo versus other imaging modalities for our audience, I think that would be super helpful, especially in the context of a prior bypass surgery. Yeah, Priya, that's a great point. Uh, question should then be, what, what should our next step be over here? Should we go ahead and intensify our anti-anginal medications? Should we explore other non-invasive testing? Or perhaps we should just go for coronary angiography finally. So our patient is complaining again of typical angina. The question has always been, should the patient be referred for PCI or should his medication be optimized? Both the COURAGE and the ischemia trial address this exact question. Both have shown that there is no survival benefit for PCI over medical therapy. The patient, however, was optimized as much as he tolerated. So I think at this point, is there one non-invasive test that is better than another? When it comes to the sensitivity and specificity of nuclear testing and myocardial perfusion imaging, the sensitivity and specificity is 87% versus 73%, while the sensitivity and specificity of an exercise echo is 86 and 81%. Now compare this to the sensitivity and specificity of coronary CTA, which is 90% and 95%. However, when you then go ahead and do a coronary CTA, you lose the exercise component, which requires the patient to have an adequate heart rate too. You have to have their heart rate down in the 60s, which not all patients have. So when it comes to the choice of which stress test to order, it's based on multiple variables, such as baseline EKG, baseline echo, what the body habitus is, the functional capacity, the heart rate, etc. There isn't always one correct answer, and the cardiologist must weigh all of these factors into his or her decision. In our patient, exercise stress echoes were ordered given his normal baseline, his EKG, echo, and acceptable functional capacity. That's great. And I think it's important for our audience to also remember that exercise testing, whenever possible, gives us a lot of very important prognostic information. And so I think here you were actually able to see a very important trend in terms of a decline in functional capacity, which is very important. 
I also appreciate that you guys did such a thorough physical exam. And you mentioned on your pulses that he had two plus radial pulses bilaterally, which is very important in a patient who has a Lima graph showing that, you know, left subclavian artery stenosis is another consideration that potentially has been lowered on the differential. So good job with that exam as well. Yeah, Priya, that's a great point. So picking up our next thought process would then be to send him for the gold standard test. The gold standard test obviously is coronary angiography. This gives you the ability to both diagnose coronary artery disease and intervene with the PCI. Limitations of this test, however, include its invasive nature and its ability to only diagnose epicardial disease and not subepicardial disease. So at this point, our patient's symptoms were intolerable, was no longer adequately able to be controlled by medical therapy, and a left heart cath with coronary angiography was then ordered. First image that we're looking at is an image of a left coronary system from the cranial perspective, which focuses predominantly on the LAD. The first thing that points out to us is that there's a 70 to 80 percent tubular stenosis around the level of the mid-LED, followed by mild luminal irregularities. Also take note that there doesn't seem to be competitive flow, which we are expecting, given the fact that he did have a lima from a prior cabbage in the past. Now going on to the second image, this time uh, from a caudal perspective, which is focusing more on the left circumflex system. And things that appear to us over here is that there's a 30 to 40 percent stenosis of the mid-circumflex at the level of the OM1. The OM1 itself is a diffusely diseased branch. This does have competitive flow. seems to be coming from the OM jump graph that he does have. Moving on now to image number three and four, these are images of the Lima graph. Uh, and it starts off to appear as a normal Lima graph, but then when it is supposed to anastomose into the LAD, it seems to be filling a venous structure, namely the great cardiac vein, which then goes on to fill the coronary sinus. Instead of taking the normal trajectory, of anastomosing into the LAD and then going down towards the apex. I will mention also that what's not present in these images is that we did shoot the venous grafts to the PDA and the Diag-1, both of which were occluded. The venous graft to the OM was patent. At this point, we we're thinking that if in fact the Lima was anastomosed to the great cardiac vein and to the coronary sinus, then in essence we've created a left-to-right heart shunt. Your left heart cath findings are amazing. I can totally understand how confusing this could be on angiography, especially since this isn't a finding that we would expect to see. Just to clarify for our audience, we see the left anterior descending artery, the LAD, run down the interventricular groove in the heart. And so anatomically, seeing this lemma being connected to a structure that is going in the AV groove, the atrioventricular groove, is very concerning for uh, a venous anastomosis. Very interesting findings. So yeah, Priya, this actually leaves us with a bunch of questions. Obviously, no one was expecting his original coronary artery disease to be quote-unquote untreated, so to speak, because his left anterior descending artery was not bypassed at all. It was alarming to see that a lot of his grafts also closed, but we are now also left with many clinical questions. Number one, how should we manage his coronary artery disease right now? How should we manage what you mentioned was a left-to-right heart shunt by the fact that his lima, which is an arterial system, is now connected to the great cardiac vein into the coronary sinus that makes it a left-to-right heart shunt? Does this affect his coronary perfusion pressure at all? So when it comes to managing his coronary artery disease, we're left with a bunch of questions. Should we refer him for repeat surgery with possibility of a rima to his LAD? Should we just simply place a drug-eluting scent in his diseased LAD? Then when it comes to his left-to-right heart shunt, 
how do we manage that? So the question I think we first have to ask is what's considered to be a significant left to right hard shunt, which first I think we need to talk about what is a shunt. Uh, a shunt is where we can lead to increase in flow into a single chamber and cause signs of heart failure from one side of the heart to the other. It can be caused the signs of heart failure, whether it's clinically or on echocardiography, meaning with chamber dilatation. To help guide us towards the severity of a shunt, we calculate what's known as the QPQS ratio, which represents the flow going through the pulmonary system versus the flow going through the systemic system. Without a shunt, the ratio should be exactly one. In other words, the flow going through the right heart should equal the flow going through the left heart. A significant left-to-right heart shunt will increase the flow through the pulmonary system and decrease the flow through the systemic system. A ratio then of greater than 1.5 signifies a significant shunt that may require intervention. If it is deemed that there needs to be an intervention, various options are available for closing such shunt and include coil or balloon embolization, vascular plugs, venous ligation, or a covered stent. Eric, thank you so much for walking us through that as you were describing the evaluation for this essentially iatrogenic arteriovenous fistula of the coronary system. You know, the thing that I love about cardiology is that the specifics may change, but the core concepts don't, right? And I'm recalling our wonderful case episode with Alex Pipilis and Danny Pipilis from Boston University and MGH, where they described to us a case of congenital sinus venosus defect with right upper pulmonary vein, partial anomalous pulmonary venous return. And we went through this whole discussion about how do you evaluate what is a significant shunt? We described the QPQS. We said, you know, we start thinking about significant shunt when it's above 1.5, but especially above 2. And we thought about the indications for closure. And really, the parallels are very similar here because the core concept doesn't change. This is a left to right shunt. So with that in mind, what did you find on right heart cath? And this is what I'm listening for. I'm listening for essentially the, the hemodynamics, the pressures in the right side, and the pulmonary wedge, because I remember when Eric was going through his differential diagnosis for why a person may have symptoms, he went over valvular problems, myocardial problems, electrical problems, etc. So this will actually help understand why he's symptomatic, as well as if you have a significant left or right shunt, i.e. oxygenated blood passing through the lima to the great cardiac vein, coronary sinus RA, we should anticipate a step up in oxygen saturation from the SVC or the IVC into the RA level. So what did you find? A right heart cardiac catheterization was performed. The results demonstrated a wedge pressure of 9 millimeters of mercury with a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury. Cardiac output was 6.07 by thermal dilution with a cardiac index of 3.41. In addition to the right heart catheter, shunt run was performed. Shunt run did not reveal any significant step up or step down in saturations. Furthermore, a QPQS ratio was calculated. The ratio came out to be 1.0. This indicated that there was no significant shunt across the lesion. You guys have highlighted perfectly the versatility and the incredible information that we can gain by doing a cardiac catheterization. Not only have we looked at the coronary anatomy, but we've also defined the hemodynamics and we've excluded a hemodynamically significant shunt in the setting of this iatrogenic arteriovenous fistula. And so in this setting, with this information, what are you guys thinking is now the culprit or the cause for the patient symptoms? The culprit at this point is likely the fact that his LAD, which was significantly diseased known four years ago, was never actually treated. The bypass never actually bypassed the LAD, and there was never a stent placed in that LAD. Also, a lot of his SVGs were occluded as well, continuing to add to his ischemic heart. 
you know, just thinking about how much myocardium is getting adequate blood flow and how much is not in this patient, right? I mean, for me, it's always difficult when somebody rattles off, you know, this disease, that disease in the native vasculature, and this graft is down, that graft is up. I think, okay, like, you know, I kind of have to dumb it down for my own personal self. But if I think about it one territory at a time, there's native RCA disease and the graft of the RCA is, is out, right? And so the RCA territory, that entire chunk of myocardium, and this patient has a normal ejection fraction to suggest that there's a lot of viability and myocardium that is alive but at risk, right? So the RCA territory is gone, okay? We know that there's native LAD disease. The lima is not going to the LAD and the vein graft to the diag is gone. So the entire LAD territory is jeopardized, at risk, starved for life-giving, sustaining blood and oxygen. The only territory that still has some degree of revascularization is a circumflex territory because the vein graft to the obtuse marginals is still open. And who knows how much retrograde, antigrade flow you're actually getting from those OMs. So you've got a huge, huge RCA territory, LED territory, maybe some sections of the circumflex territory that are alive and starved for blood and oxygen and nutrients. And so this is really coming together very nicely. I'm recalling your earlier differential diagnosis, how you approach patients with heart dysfunction, right? And we said, is it cardiac, is it non-cardiac? Here we said it's cardiac. And, you know, you said, is it myocardium? Is it pericardium? Is it valvular? Is it coronary? Is it electrical? Well, we don't have arrhythmia, so it's probably not electrical. The myocardium seems okay. The ejection fraction is okay, so it's probably not that. We don't have a reason to suggest pericardial failure. And the valve, we don't have indications of valvular heart disease in the echocardiograms this patient has had before. So we're bearing to see that the core problem here is large sections of unrevascularized myocardium. Yeah, and I love the fact that you guys investigated for the hemodynamic consequences of a potential shunt, you know, left-right shunt, because if you had a more significant shunt where you were pumping all of this red blood right back into the blue system, you would overwhelm that left ventricle with higher pressures, right? That would all come back around, and that would increase the LVEDP. And knowing that coronary perfusion pressure is the diastolic blood pressure of the aorta subtracted by the left ventricular and diastolic pressure, right, you could potentially have made that worse. So now that you've taken out elevated filling pressures as a part of this person's ischemia and identify the fact that, wow, there's so much ischemia from just multi-vessel disease. We're almost back to square one of where the patient was when we referred them for bypass to begin with. So this is a very, very important juncture where now you may or may not have an option for bypass again, given his previous sternotomy and the use of all these graphs. So very interested to see what your next approach would be in terms of management from this point. So after the initial part of the angiogram, uh, they proceeded with the white heart cath. They did all the measurements, QPQS, shown to be one, non-significant, no step up. And also, as we may have briefly discussed, you know, he had the echo, which basically was normal. He didn't have any LV dysfunction, no chamber dilatation, or any clinical signs of heart failure as well. So basically, again, then the discussion or decision was to be made as how best to proceed. At this point, the decision was made to proceed with the... Uh, PCI of his uh, 70% lesion of the mid-LED with the drug-eluting stent. Due to the right heart cath and the current hemodynamics, there was a decision also not to proceed with any further intervention regarding the anastomosis to the great cardiac vein. So did the patient feel better after the PCI? So after completing the procedure, uh, the patient was discharged home, and he was noted to have a significant improvement in his clinical symptoms. He followed up the clinic, and actually we proceeded with another exercise stress echocardiogram. On this one, he was actually noted to have significant improvement. He was able to exercise for greater than five minutes, which was an improvement from the last one, and he was able to obtain about seven mets. He again did experience a mild chest discomfort, but again, by EKG and echo, there were no signs of uh, ischemia. 
So is there a question about full revascularization? Because his, his CERC system is okay, right? Because he's got the SVG to OM1 and OM2 with retrograde flow, right? But his SVG to the RPDA is occluded and his SVG to the DIAG is occluded, right? Why did we decide to PCI the LAD? And then why did we decide not to PCI the RPDA and the DIAG1 that was unrevascularized? So the, the decision was made to treat the LAD because that was most likely the culprit for his symptoms and supplies the most ischemic territory. The plan was then to have him follow up in clinic and do symptomatic management to decide whether we should do further revascularization, which is why we then went for the stress echo afterwards again. I think this is actually an important opportunity to talk about the ischemic cascade. So when we think about ischemia, we think about different stages of uh, time where people start to develop findings. And so we have people that have completely normal coronaries, normal functional capacity, no symptoms. The earliest form of detection is going to be perfusion abnormalities, which we can detect with myocardial perfusion imaging. You can actually perform myocardial perfusion imaging stress, exercise, or vasodilator stress. Then we start to see later on diastolic dysfunction. Then we start to see systolic dysfunction around the time that we start to see EKG abnormalities and anginal symptoms. And so it's actually a very interesting conversation about what the right stress test is for which patient population. Wow, Priya, thank you very much for that uh, explanation of the ischemic cascade. It really does play a role into how we manage our patients. But I did want to bring up an interesting point is the question is, he presented a couple of years after his cabbage. So the question then is, if he was never really revascularized, why did he have symptomatic release after his bowel's cabbage? And can a lima to a great cardiac vein be of any benefit in any way? So the idea of why he did have symptomatic relief after his cabbage, there's a couple of explanations for his symptomatic relief. One idea is that he did have multiple other arteries that were bypassed with saphenous venous grafts, which could have relieved a significant portion of his ischemia. There's also an additional placebo effect in treating angina, especially when procedures are performed, meaning anybody who has a procedure automatically has the placebo effect of improving their angina. Lastly, perhaps increasing the pressure in the coronary sinus helped him to perfuse the ischemic regions as well as the collaterals. Let me explain what that means. Research dating back to the 1950s, actually, demonstrated that increasing the pressure in the coronary sinus with occluder devices has been shown to increase flow into ischemic regions as well as into collateral branches into the ischemic region. The original thinking, although it never actually took off clinically, was for patients who were not amenable to revascularization to undergo a coronary sinus occluder device. The device would narrow the diameter of the coronary sinus thereby increased pressure in the sinus. The elevated pressure would promote flow into endocardial tissues and eventually into the ischemic territories, as well as increasing flow into the collateral branches. Now, obviously, nobody would ever use this as a primary source to treat angina, but now that it exists in our patient, is it possible that it gave some benefit to him? Certainly it's possible, but we'll never know, to be sure. That is a very interesting point. And I think, you know, as we've seen technology evolve and our techniques in and out of the cath lab improve for revascularization, this is kind of an antiquated but interesting concept of how we can improve coronary perfusion. At the end of the day, we want to provide people with the maximal amount of oxygenated blood flow to their myocardium as possible. And so with contemporary PCI utilizing drug-looting stents and contemporary cardiac surgery, ideally using arterial bypass conduits, we really are seeing major improvements in people's overall prognosis and symptom management as well. 
in our patient over here, the cornerstone of this case is that the lima was bypassed instead of to the LAD to his great cardiac vein. But what's also uh, of significance is that multiple SVGs were occluded and it's just been four years since his cabbage. So the question begs to be asked, should he have received more arterial grafts? The standard for years has always been to bypass the primary vessel with the lima, namely a lima to the LED, and further grafts would be performed with SVGs. The longevity of a lima over SVG has prompted the question, should we be using more arterial grafts? Uh, should we be using our radial arteries? Should we be using our rima as well? It only makes sense that an arterial system should be bypassed with an arterial graft. You guys, this was an incredible case. I think that, you know, we've all kind of conceptually thought about this as a possibility, but I, I personally have never seen uh, something like this case. And so thank you for bringing this to our attention. And I think this is an important thing to keep in mind whenever we have patients that are post-bypass, even in an early time frame after their bypass surgery coming in with classic anginal symptoms. You know, we are pretty limited in terms of our understanding of what a bypass surgery actually entails. And Luckily, I have a passerby here, my fiance, who's a cardiac surgeon, who can offer a little bit of perspective on this topic. I wanted to introduce Moritz Weiler von Balmus, who's a cardiac surgeon in Houston, and he specializes in minimally invasive and robotic cardiac surgery, including uh, mini thoracotomies for bypass surgery. And so I wanted to ask a couple questions. Moritz, if you'd like to say hello to our audience. Sure. Hello. Thank you for having me. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the bypass surgery, I think interventional cardiologists, you know, we really just get to see the epicardial vessels. And so whenever you're doing a bypass surgery, what are some of the things that can make it difficult to identify artery versus vein? And how do you verify that you're actually anastomosed with an arterial system instead of the venous system? Yeah, I think this is a very good question, Priya. At the outset, I would say that although cabbage, coronary artery bypass grafting is really the most common cardiac surgery procedure that's being performed, a difficult cabbage is probably the most difficult cardiac surgery procedure you can do. And that's pretty uniformly true if you talk to even very seasoned cardiac surgeons. And it is because the vessels we work with are small. They are sometimes one or two millimeters in size. But what really makes the distinguishing feature between a vein and an artery is really no different from anywhere else in the body. Artery typically has a very distinct median adventitia, while a vein is very thin-walled. I had a chance to sort of review quickly this case with you here, and these things happen. It's unfortunate, but this is certainly not the first case. It's not the last case. Typically, it's very easy to spot the LAD and distinguish it from a vein, again, because the wall thickness is very different. You don't typically see atherosclerosis, plaque calcifications, and wall thickness in a vein, right? Because they are spared from the disease process. So typically, it's not really hard to make that distinction. I think one notable exception is if you have an intramyocardial course of a coronary, those coronaries tend to be much more thin-walled. And when you open those arteries, they, they may look more similar to a vein, but then at the same time, you unroof them, you duck them out of the myocardium. So you would assume that you found the epicardial version somewhere and follow it to the intramyocardial course. So in general, it is the 
wall thickness, the involvement with atherosclerosis that really gives it away and, and makes the distinction relatively straightforward. But you have to keep in mind, although we have the advantage of working with direct visualization and looking at these vessels, the epicardial vessels, and working with loop magnification, at the end of the day, it's an art form to learn to put the angiograms and the intraoperative findings together and to sort of have that visualization, that 3D spatial sort of orientation that you go looking in the right place for the LAD. Thank you for your answer. And another question for our friendly neighborhood cardiac surgeon. So what are your thoughts on bypass grafting? So do you have any feeling about arterial versus arterial plus venous grafting? And what are some of the things that make all arterial grafting difficult? Yeah, so I think this is a very good and timely question. There's certainly increasing evidence that arterial grafts do provide a benefit over venous grafts. I personally am a huge advocate of uh, multi-arterial grafting or all-arterial grafting. And the reason for that is really quite straightforward. If you just look at the biological plausibility, venous grafts are not meant for arterial pressures and flows, but arterial grafts are. The other thing is that veins have valves which cause turbulent flow, stasis, and dilation distal to the valve. So it makes the, the vein prone to developing atherosclerosis. Now, we, we do have different arterial grafts available to do bypass grafting. And the two obvious grafts are the internal arteries, the left and right internal mammary artery. There is radial grafts from the radial artery that can be used and the gastroepiploic grafts. But really, I think there is mostly biological plausibility and increasing data available that shows that arterial grafting probably is superior to venous grafting. And that's not just true for the LAD territory. Certainly, the LAD is the most prominent artery we bypass. It provides blood flow to up to 80% of the myocardium. So it is a, a big and important artery. But if you look at bypass graft patency, and, and a lot of these studies come out of the Cleveland Clinic, studies by Sabig and other authors, they looked at the patency. And one thing that really stands out is that the mammary grafts or arterial grafts uniformly beat venous grafts in terms of patency in the short and long term. I think it is important to look at the underlying pathology and the degree of stenosis of the native vessels. There's certainly a correlation with the extent of stenosis of the native vessels and graft patency. That seems to be more pronounced in the right coronary territory than the left coronary territory. And it's certainly more of an issue with radial grafts that are more muscular, that have a stronger media, are more vasoreactive than the internal artery grafts. But again, in general, in, if you look at all the data, the, the cumulative sum of evidence that we have, arterial grafts certainly beat venous grafts in terms of patency. Wow, that's a very interesting perspective. And I think it raises an important question of do we ask our surgeons, you know, about the potential for all arterial conduits in these patients? And I think that knowledge is power and it really does help us feel empowered in, in asking these important questions to advocate for our patients. I personally am a big advocate of it in the United States. If you look, the BEMA use, you know, using both internal mammary arteries for bypass grafting is the utilization is under 10% in it's around 6 or 7% in the US in Europe it's a little bit higher it's around 10% but if you go to sort of the studies that have looked at patency you, you see a, a patency of over 90 95% for 
internal thoracic artery grafts for both the LAD as well as other left-sided targets. And equally so for the right coronary targets, if there is, you know, significant proximal stenosis, stenosis that is above 60-70%. Thank you for all of that information. Yeah, that was phenomenal. Thank you so much for that unique perspective. I just want to thank again our colleagues from bringing us this phenomenal case from SUNY Downstate, Dr. Eric Cooperstein and Gotham Upadhya. Thank you so much for the teaching you provided us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And also a very special thanks to Priya for joining us as a guest co-host for this case. Thank you for having me. I learned so much per usual from being here with you guys today, and I can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks, team. This was amazing. I'd like to take a second to introduce Dr. Fight right now. Dr. Alan Fight has been a cardiologist at Downstate with the fellows for over 30 years. And we rotate through many hospitals in New York. I think we rotate through five different hospitals and we get to meet interventionalists throughout the, the Brooklyn area. And constantly they tell me, please send my regards to Dr. Alan Fight. He is the father of our teaching. He is our mentor and he is responsible for so many interventionalists throughout the Brooklyn area. Actually, it, it seems hard to believe, but the fellows who I've taught have somehow become older than me and retired now. But the, just to give you a little background, everybody knows that Cornand and Dickinson got the Nobel Prize for cardiac cats, along with Warner Forsman, who was the guy who you see in the books who did the right heart cath on himself long before they came along. What people don't know is that Cornand had two cardiology fellows at Columbia Presbyterian one of whom everybody knows of was Eugene Braunwald. The other one nobody knows of was a guy named Gregory Jameson. But one of Jameson's fellows was a guy named Ed Dwyer, and one of Ed Dwyer's fellows was me. So what I tell our fellows when, when this comes up is they can trace their lineage back to Cornand in four generations. I am a little bit like Johnny Appleseed. There's a lot of apples that seem to have, have sprouted for me, but many of them have surpassed me in their skills and uh, what they do, but I'm very proud of them. One of the things that's funny about working with fellows the way I do is I, I don't realize how old I am. I think I'm as young as, the, as they are. So it's a, it's a good thing for me. And I appreciate the opportunity to uh, work with them and to be on this podcast with you. There's a, a couple of things I'd, I'd like to share. This is somebody who, who I've taken care of serially for a long time. He's a very nice man who avoids physical exertion. You ask him, you know, how far do you walk? He says, as far as I have to, to get to the car. He he doesn't push himself. So he's somebody who can tolerate the stable exertional engine and symptoms where someone else who wants to, you know, jog five miles a day, wants to bike, wants to ski or play hockey the way Eric does, not going to be satisfied with, with this man's level of angina. The fellas talked uh, quite a bit about what imaging test you try to do. And I think it's very important to understand, or at least the concept that I've come to understand is there's a real difference between stable ischemic heart disease and NEACS presentation. Presumably with stable ischemic heart disease, there are stenoses that are not changing or not changing quickly, and they don't behave as if they're unstable and going to rupture. With ACS, it's a totally different pathophysiology. So the reason I did exercise echoes in this patient is that what concerned him was his level of symptoms. And he really never had symptoms at rest. It's always exertional, always relieved by rest. So I had a certain level of comfort that there was not an unstable situation. The art of cardiology, part of it, 
it's sometimes stable engine, it becomes unstable engine, and you have to recognize that. So I always wanted the exercise component to this, because actually what drove him back to the cath lab was that his symptoms weren't acceptable to him anymore. And his exercise time, although it didn't change by much, was enough that it made a difference to him. The second thing is, as soon as we shot the coronary angios, actually knew knew what he had. But what I'd like to point out now is when you image something in the cath lab, if you think you know what it is, you can find it online. You know, so the the, the days, you know, that I grew up in where we did films, we looked at videotapes, there was no internet, uh, you couldn't. Access every article that was ever written. You would call somebody like uh, the Cath Lab at uh, Beth Israel and uh, talk to somebody in Grossman's Lab, the one who wrote the book that we all used to use, and ask him to try to describe what you saw and say, "Anybody know what this is?" Now you you look at your image and you think, "Gee, I think they asked the most a greater cardiac vein," and I think I've seen a coronary sinus belt. Or you look at coronaries and think, "Gee, I think this is a spontaneous dissection." or fibromuscular dysplasia, and you Google the image, and there's a picture. The picture will come up because somebody else has put it there. And you can look at it and say, boy, that is what it looks like we have. You can Google who wrote the last review article on this, who wrote the last case report. Then if you're not sure about uh, should you you think this artery, this needs to be closed, you can call them. You can call them in real time. So we actually knew what this was when we took the picture. Very unusual. You know, I've been doing this for almost 35, 40 years. I've seen, you know, anastomosis to the wrong artery about five or six times. And that's because these arteries are intramyocardial. And sometimes diagonals run next to LADs and the surgeon can fish out the, the wrong thing. So the, these things do happen. This is the only time I've ever seen the great cardiac vein bypass. My sense of it, and it's not a surgical sense, is that the walls are thinner. And, you know, at least the surgeons that I've talked about this case, were more of the opinion that this is a little harder mistake to explain than when somebody bypasses a diagonal instead of an LAD, when the LAD is intramyocardial. Then we talked about how do you fix this? Well, for him, the, the, the most reasonable thing, I think, was let's stent the LAD and see if that helps his symptoms, and it has. And then the question comes up, should you close this uh, lima because it's a shunt? And the, the literature gives you different uh, different things that people have done. For us, without being able to demonstrate that this is a physiologically important shunt, the shunt ratio is still one. The most reasonable thing, to me at least, was to leave it alone. And I think a good rule for fixing things as a physician is if fixing something involves something invasive and risk, before you fix something that does not seem to be a problem, I think you need some expectation that if you leave it alone, it will become a problem. So if we're talking about the, a colon polyp that's going to become a malignancy, yeah, you should take it out. If we're talking about something like this where it's not at all clear that you need to do anything for it, probably best thing is leave it alone. We can do follow-up echoes. We can see if anything ever looks bigger on the right side. So that's why we left this alone. And then the, the final thought about the arterial grafts, I think we should be a little more demanding of our surgeons as far as arterial grafts. You know, it's hard to show long-term survival benefit for more than Lima to the LAD because Lima to the LAD is such an important element of increasing survival. But certainly from the things that I've seen, the patients who have arterial grafts, the arterial grafts, whether it's a free radial or a, a free Rima or a Rima that, uh, you know, is directly connected to a graft or to a coronary, they stand up better than the veins. And I think for most patients, we should be asking our surgeons to at least do Lima to LAD and free radial to something else.
assuming the radio is a good option. But, uh, you know, what I'd like to say is, uh, as somebody who's been doing this a long time, what keeps, you know, the attendings in the game is the fellows. Because the fellows uh, require you, you you have to keep up. They keep you interested and doing the, the newer things that come along. It's a lot easier for an old dog to at least try to deal with new tricks when there's younger dogs who pull them along. You know, it's, it's a little bit, you know, you're not pulling this dog sled by yourself anymore. And sometimes they're dragging you, but at least you're not trying to dig in your heels when they try to pull you forward. So I very much enjoy this. And uh, I'm always amazed when this stuff on the computer actually works. And you taught me something today about how to refresh. So thank you again. And that's it for me. Beep. Beep.